I invite you to take your copy of God's Word now and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. This is one of those familiar prophecies that we meditate upon in this season. Isaiah chapter 9. And the words to which I would call your attention come to us from verses 1 to 7. If you need help, page 692 in my Bible. Um, Isaiah, as you're turning there, is sometimes likened to it is the Bible um, of the Bible, 66 chapters compared to 66 books of the Bible. We'll read this morning these first seven verses. I'm actually going to pick up in chapter 8, verse 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But... There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, We commit the reading of your word and the preaching of your word to you. We ask that what is spoken now that is true would be driven to our hearts, that our spirit would receive it and be emboldened, impassioned, that our zeal for your glory would be like your zeal for your glory, a burning white-hot heat. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. One of my Bible reading practices is as I go through chapter by chapter in the scriptures, I'll try to summarize each chapter with one word. 
Uh, that helps me as I'm going day by day. I can go back and look at what was the word I used for chapter 9 and chapter 10 to kind of give me that recollection of what the word was saying. As I went back in my notes and was looking at chapter 9, the single word that I wrote down for chapter 9 is this, anger. Chapter 9 reveals to us the anger of Yahweh against His people. So we read, for instance, in verse 13 of this chapter, the people did not turn to Him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. You get this picture of, of Israel as a son of God, right? And the Lord disciplines His son. He strikes him with a mighty blow, and this blow is intended to, to do what? It's to get his attention, like we might do with our children. He, smart, he strikes him with a blow, but instead of turning to his father, saying, Father, what did I do to deserve this? There's no response. He just went on in his treachery. So, this portion of, of Isaiah chapter 9, um, verses 1 through 7, it, it's it is nestled, if you will, in a section of Isaiah that is all about judgment. Okay, so this is important. Chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah, the Lord is looking at Judah, He's looking at Jerusalem, and He is pronouncing through Isaiah judgment. Right? You remember the call of Isaiah? We reflected on this in, in um, Mark chapter 4. When the Lord called Isaiah, he said, go to this people, proclaim good news to them, but in all of your proclaiming, they will not listen to you. They will not see. It's all about judgment. So then you turn the corner in chapter 13, and then the Lord looks away from Judah and Jerusalem. In chapters 13 to 24, he looks toward the nations and proclaims judgment on the nations. So this, this whole section is all about judgment. It's, it's not a lot of good news here. But even, you, you think about even when a storm passes by, th there are moments, right, where the clouds sort of part. There are moments where the clouds part and there's just a beam of light. Just a reminder that, that outside of the storm there's peace and there's calm and the light shines through. And so chapters nine, chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 is a ray of light in the midst of very dark foreboding clouds. The very placement of the passage demonstrates what it teaches, doesn't it? The people who are in gloom, the people who are wandering in darkness will see a great light. Here the clouds part, and here a promise is set before us. In our verses, these verses, God intends through Isaiah to give us hope. And this hope comes in the form of a person. A person who will bring restoration and joy. So we're going to see uh, just a couple of points this morning that God promises His people restoration through a righteous ruler. 
Restoration will come to the people of God through a righteous ruler. Let's notice, first of all then, in verses 1 through 3, this, that God promises restoration of joyful fellowship. Now, I want to note for you something here, that in the Hebrew Bible, in the, in the Jewish Bible, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9 is not verse 1. Actually, verse 1 of chapter 9 is verse 23 of chapter 8. That's why we began reading where we did. So what happens is in chap chapter verse 2 is actually verse 1 of chapter 9 in the Hebrew Bible. And that's appropriate because this whole, the whole flow of this passage connects together. And it helps us to notice that as we think about restoration... We have to think about, well, well, that's restoration to what, right? Restoration from what? Now, first of all, then, we see in terms of this restoration that th this promise that God gives to his people is in light of, of judgment. These are a people who have abandoned God. We see in verse 19 that they, they go and they inquire of media, mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter instead of inquiring of the Lord. Now there's this scene later on in which um, I've shared this with some of you before. But uh, in Isaiah he condemns them because as the armies are approaching and they surround Jerusalem... They, they do what they, any man would do, right? They go and they start to tear down the houses and they take the rubble of the houses and they take mortar and they start to build up the walls around the city to protect the people from the invaders. They go out to the house that Solomon had built and they get all of the weapons out of the armory and the Lord condemns them because he says, you did not turn to the one who brought this calamity upon you. So the Lord has brought ruin and misery upon them in judgment for their sin. And there's an application here for you and for me. That, that there's no hardship in life, if, if we're really thinking truthfully, there's no hardship in our lives that we don't deserve. I asked someone this morning, how are you doing? And she responded, better than I deserve. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. And so we begin, as we think about restoration and what this whole season of Advent means, we have to think about where we're coming from. We're coming from a place of rebellion against the Lord. But there's another thing that I would have you notice about this restoration being in light of judgment. That, that this restoration, did you notice it in the passage? That this restoration is all of God's determination. It's His doing. Both the judgment and the restoration come from God. They, they originate in His will. So we see what this restoration is from, and then again we see what the restoration is to. And, and here it is, God promises, uh, God's promise results in the gladness and joy of God's
people. Notice in verse 2 what's going to happen. That, that here they are wandering in darkness. In verse 1 that they're, they're in gloom. But the clouds will part in verse 2. And the people who walked in darkness will have seen a great light. Light is going to shine on them. Maybe you recognize in verse 1 that he's talking to Zebulun and Naphtali. And he talks about Jordan and Galilee of the nations. And, and that will turn on a little light bulb will come on for you. say, oh, oh, I know what that's about. Because the Lord Jesus, when he ministered, he began in the region of Galilee. Oh, there's the great light. He's there proclaiming truth to him. He came as a preacher and a teacher of the law and of the gospel. That's the great light. And that's part of it, isn't it? When we read the scriptures, it's made known to us that light equals truth. So you think, okay, well, what's going to happen is they're walking in falsehood, worshiping their worthless idols, and the truth is going to dawn upon them, and all of a sudden they're going to worship the one true God. And that would be true. But I don't think that's what Isaiah is getting at in this prophecy. Light in Isaiah's prophecy is reflective of the fact that God's restoration is a restoration of the people of God to God. When we end our worship today, we'll end with a benediction. And you know how it goes. I'll lift up my hands, I'll look at you, and I'll say, lift up your face and look and see. The Lord God, may He be gracious to you. May He lift up the light of His countenance upon you. Some of you will remember that when they constructed the tabernacle, there were two pieces there, the lampstand and the showbread. Twelve loaves of showbread representing the twelve tribes of Israel and the lampstand shining perpetually upon the tribes of Israel saying what? May the Lord always shine upon you. May He look at you. Because why? When the Lord looks away... When he takes his favor away, that's not good. What we want is for the Lord to look on us, to show us favor, to be kind. And that's what Isaiah is saying. When the Lord was, brings about your uh, restoration, what he's going to do is this. No longer will you be strangers. No longer will you be sons abiding under the Lord's discipline you will be sons abiding under the Lord's favor. So notice how he goes on. What is this joy? He says in verse 13, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. My sister right now is pregnant. And she's not enjoying it. <laughs> and she's about to have a child. And the prospect of having the child is mostly happy but then there's also the prospect of sleepless nights isn't there and crying and how do I deal with three plus the infant and so there's some trepidation but notice what we see in verse 4 that the nation will multiply and so will joy do you, do you see what that's saying that every child that's born to Israel will only increase the joy of Israel that every child that's born to Israel there's no concern will he be a rebel 
will be wicked? No, he will only expand this joy. And this is the Lord's promise. That he will give them children. That they'll grow. And with all of that growth will come more joy. And this will not be ordinary joy. This will be joy greater than the harvest. Their gladness will be increased. And in verse 3 we say what? They rejoice where? Before you. This is what the Lord is promising you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That through Christ now, you may rejoice in the presence of the Lord. Look, Israel before, what was their experience of the presence of the Lord? Think about Sinai. Think about Exodus chapter 19. And there there is the presence of the Lord uh, demonstrated to them, illustrated to them in a thick cloud of darkness and fire. And everybody says, oh, let us go, right? No, nobody said that. They said, in fact, there's the line. We're going to take ten steps back from the line. We're not going up. But here, you see, through Christ, there's no more fear. Christ brings you himself to the top of the mountain. He brings you to worship in the presence of God through Christ who has perfect righteousness. And this is our joy. This is a restoration to God. And this... The promise that we have in Christ reflects God's gracious character. Why why is he doing this? Go back to chapter 8. Read the rest of chapter 9, verses 8 to the end. This is not a people who are clamoring for restoration. This is not a people who are seeking after the Lord. This is a people who are rebelling with all their might against him and then breaks in restoration. Why? Because your God delights in showing his grace. He's not hesitatingly gracious, he's not gracious with restraint. He is gracious with all his being. That's why we can read in places like Colossians, right? That that the love of Christ is is beyond understanding, beyond comprehension. Because when we think about it, who, who would love me? Why would he give me this restoration? Why would he initiate it? Why would he come to me when I'm running against him as hard as I can as a rebel... And bring me to himself. Here's why. For the glory of his grace. But then we have to ask this question. Okay, so I understand, preacher. I understand that that God gives us this promise of restoration. That this is a majestic promise. That that there's fullness of, of joy. Fullness of hope. How's he going to do that? The latter half of this teaches us how he's going to do that. And secondly, we see then that God delivers his people 
And he gives them a ruler in verses 4 through 7. Notice in the text, verses 4, 5, and 6. Do you see what each and every one of those verses begins with? Four, four, four. This is, this is what all of this rests upon. How, how is he going to bring us from gloom to light in this way, by this means? He teaches us that he's going to be the deliverer of his people. What kind of a deliverance is this? First, it's a delivery from slavery to sin. He takes away the yoke of slavery to sin from his people. Did you know that unbelief in and of itself is a form of slavery? Paul reminds us of this in Romans 6, verses 16 to 18. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness, in verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So the, 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 the scriptures teach us that we are in bondage to sin. But the unbeliever feels like he's thinking rationally. Right? He's looking at the world. I am the one who's looking at the world objectively. I'm the only one who observes the science. I'm not going to believe anything unless all the evidence leads me to a final conclusion. Scripture reminds us that your mind is not capable of thinking rationally. That the unregenerate mind is one that can't evaluate evidence rationally. Why? Because it's in bondage to sin. Think about the picture of Uzzah. You remember Uzzah? 2 Samuel chapter 6. The ark, the ark was being returned on a wagon cart... To Jerusalem. And suddenly, the wagon started to shake and shift, and the wagon gave way, and the, the Ark of the Covenant begins to slide off into the mud. And suddenly, as if by impulse, Uzzah sticks out his hand to hold the Ark to keep it from falling into the mud, and God strikes him down dead. What do we learn from that? Something very simple. That the very impulse of my instinct is sinful. My very knee-jerk reaction is sinful in the eyes of the Lord. My desire unthinkingly is to rebel and to sin against the Lord. I shared this passage of scripture one time with a lady in a nursing home, a very dear and a sweet lady, and I shared this with her to remind her that even, even in a nursing home, we have to be diligent against sin. And she said, I have to confess something. That the other day in the lunchroom, there's a lady who's in a wheelchair. She always pushes her chair out in the middle of the cafeteria aisle. And when I walk by, I just had enough and I shoved the wheelchair up under her seat. Even in the nursing home, the impulse to sin is still there. We are in bondage. 
But the promise of God is to break the bondage. Our garments of war will be burned. In verse 5, he will bring peace to his people. But God doesn't deliver us by delivering us from government. We might think that today, right? That certainly the, the, the deliverance of God is going to be to deliver us out from, from the strong hand of a governor to deliver us to maybe some sort of self-rule. But verse 6 reminds us, no, that God does not deliver his people from anarchy or to anarchy. He doesn't deliver them to self-rule. What God does is give his people a gracious king. A righteous king. So perhaps some of you have nice bathroom soaps or signs in your home that say, unto us a child is born. And we think about that glorious evening or morning when the lights shone down from the star and there were Mary and Joseph with the infant Christ there nestled and there the son is born. But I want you to think about this just a little bit more deeply. Why is it important that a son is born? Because a son can rule. This reflects upon the promise to David that the son of David would sit upon the throne forever. But, but what, kind of a, what kind of a ruler will he be? Well, we're told, aren't we? It's in his name. His name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. His name shall be called Mighty God. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. For the sake of time, let me ask you just to reflect upon this one aspect of his name. Here is one who is both born and whose name is God. Here is one who is born, a son given to us, and whose name is Mighty God. Now we bring this all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 9. What do we sing? Well, this man who is born of a woman who went to the region of the Galileans, as we see in verse 1, who goes around and calms the sea. This one who casts out demons. This one who calls these, these rugged fishermen to himself and they obey with immediacy. One is being demonstrated to us. Mighty God. There he is. There's the one about whom Isaiah prophesied. All of these wonders that he works point you to the fact that this is the one. God incarnate. And blessed be God. His rule will have no end we're thinking right now about the transition of our government. And we might go through periods of time where we're so thankful. Thank you, Lord, for giving us rulers who preserve the peace of the church. Thank you, Lord, for rulers who reduce our taxes. And then we think with trepidation, oh, four years from now we have to decide this all again. 
And we become anxious again and worried again. But the one thing, one thing here that is so important about this prophecy is that when this ruler comes, his rule is permanent. Permanent. When Christ set foot on the earth and he said the kingdom of God has come near, it's permanent. There's no taking it back. It will not wane in its influence. It will only wax and grow stronger. He will sit on the throne of David forever. Why? Verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, not because we're seeking it, not because we're asking for it, but because it is His will to bring this about for the good of His people. Beloved, today Isaiah 9 is reminding you that you need to return to Jesus. Some of you need to turn to Him for the first time as the God-man who reconciles you to your Maker. Some of you need to turn to Him in confession of sin and repentance. Listen, to know His loving reception. Some of you need to repent of calling your service to God a burden and to ask Him to give you joy. Some need to reflect on who Jesus really is. He's not a moral storyteller. He's God and man in one person. Some of you need to rest in knowing, listen, that right now, He is ruling and reigning from Zion and His kingdom will have no end. There's no transition committee for the government of Christ. In all of this, brothers and sisters, remember, God never forgets His promises to His people. Call on Him. He will give you truth, He will give you joy, and He will give you gladness. Amen. Father, we thank You for the promises of Your Word. And we know that these promises are true, that they are unchanging, because You are true, and because You are unchanging. Help us, Father, to apply these promises to ourselves today in worship, in adoration, and in obedience to you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.